0: blockchain blockchain, is what is value? blockchain?
1: Who feels like they understand blockchain? Actually, we soft? can be human. How can they Once utopia you can be another person
2: Turn off your phone, lock your door, and study this technology for a day. It's a lot of the blockchain
3: initiatives never Sometimes that we are trying to put blockchain it feels it's really exciting it's to be really involved in block blockchain networks. From, from us. like
4: maybe save
5: your
6: podcast from blockchain.
5: This is White Papers on Descent, my ongoing research about blockchain as a tool for radical imagination. And I'm Barbara Coeto, curator and researcher working at the intersection of activism, new technologies and contemporary art. White Papers on Descent is a nomadic project and in this episode we will be hearing extras recorded during the panel discussions and presentations at the discursive program that took place at the Van Aden Museum in Eindhoven in the Netherlands.
0: I like blockchains not because they give the right answers, but maybe because they ask the right questions.
5: White Papers and Dissent is not an attempt to describe the financial possibilities of blockchain or about providing a comprehensive political overview. The goal is to move away from these notions and instead to take a look at the social potential. We'll be hearing from sociologists, artists, curators, media theorists, and developers who use this decentralized technology to create new social and political imaginaries we'll unravel and explain some of the manifestos, white papers and proposals that imagine the world otherwise.
0: If blockchains are a control of technology, then how do we coordinate the social in a different way than we coordinated before? And for me, the question is like, what scale do we want this coordination to take place?
5: We will be looking at the technology as a device to create new elsewheres and otherwises, new forms of utopia adapted to the characteristics and desires of the post-digital society and also trying to figure out how blockchain can be used as a sandbox for institution-making. What I mean is that we will be exploring how the technology can create different social realities through its many configurations. The Affordants have the capacity to stage different versions that respond to specific worldviews. Whether it is a hyper-capitalist option or a care-centered community, blockchain has the capacity to embody many social-political imaginaries.
0: And uh, I'm completely unconvinced by trying to project a control technology on social coordination on a small scale. For that, you need trust, you need presence, you need face you need uh, flexibility, you need a room, you need a table, you need food, you need drinks, and this is how you socially coordinate. But we do not have infrastructure for a planetary scale social coordination.
5: OK, so let's start. In this first episode, we will be looking at the world-building capacity of blockchain. And its potential to reformulate social relations and readdress power structures. This is an invitation for you to think about blockchain as an organizational tool that can build pockets of resistance that empower a
6: community in the quest for autonomy. And I think this can be a moment when I tell you what a blockchain is. Who feels like they understand blockchains? Okay. <laughs> okay, cool. Great. I don't know if i do either but i'm going to do my best to explain them to you bitcoin is the progeny blockchain it's the first ever blockchain blockchain essentially is is blocks of data in a chain and those blocks of data in the case of bitcoin store the record of a transaction so every time a transaction happens it goes as a block on the chain and it is immutable unerasable and is stored across like, multiple servers which traditionally banks hold all that transaction data in one server and that's what you access when you essentially use a bank. But in this case, you have a receipt that's stored across multiple servers, yours included. So everyone has access to that information. And as boring as it sounds, it's radical. And the genesis block of Bitcoin is a headline from the UK news that says banks bailed out for the second time in the financial collapse of 2009. It's
5: been another dark day for Britain's banks and a key test for Prime Minister Gordon Brown. For the second
2: time in three months, he and Finance Minister Alistair Darling have been forced to put together a bailout package, but with a twist. So
6: we have this reference, and though one can only hypothesize that this is a proposed radical solution to an untenable problem, right? Which is banks have become too big to fail, let's decentralize them. Many folks anticipated that that meant the redistribution of power. Somehow if we decentralize banks, we would be able to redistribute power and we were sorely mistaken, maybe slightly a redistribution of power among people who have access to technological know-how, but it wasn't the redistribution of capital, not in the way that we might've thought, right? I don't know, not the way I thought, essentially, People who now hold cryptocurrency, and there are quite a few that um, probably didn't have the same amount of capital that they previously had, now hold maybe more money than they previously did, but this has not trickled down to the bottom.
5: This is Sarasvati Sovanaman, a social artist and designer working at the intersection of art, technology and ecology. She supports Circles as a project advisor and product specialist, and we will hear more about this later.
6: I wanna talk about how I came to work in the cryptocurrency space. I think and a lot of folks might relate to this experience. I was in New York during Occupy Wall Street with lots of people making a big ruckus about a situation that was totally untenable, which was the centralization of banks and the corruption of Wall Street. It was years later that I encountered cryptocurrency through a mentor of mine who showed me the Ethereum white paper. And I cried, which is funny in retrospect but I was on a plane, I was reading it and I cried. And I cried because prior to that, I had thought that we were up against an inconceivable problem, which was the centralization of finance. It had been impossible to imagine a constructive outcome, anything that could decentralize banks. So when I read that, to me, it was miraculous that something that was previously inconceivable, I was witnessing it. And I ended up working in the cryptocurrency space. That's what drew me to it. I saw it as a movement. And I think many folks continue to see it as a movement, though many of those folks have had to deal with their ideologies being crushed myself among them. So I actually worked in the cryptocurrency space and saw that I was essentially rebuilding capitalism, but it was hyper capitalism. I started to get not only bored, but upset because I do think that blockchain is a radical imaginary.
5: So I think I, I fell into the same trap. I was also incredibly hopeful about blockchain, but the process of making the podcast and also through my PhD research, I realized you need to be super cautious to make these biggest statements about the technology. Perhaps from all the people that took part in White Papers on dissent, Balas Boro is probably one of the best examples of someone exercising this caution. He's an economist, a social legal researcher at the Institute of Information at the University of Amsterdam, and he was also deeply involved in the development of the Hungarian internet culture and creative commons in his native Hungary. He explained that he used to be hopeful about the disruptive possibilities of the technology, and that's why at the beginning he was attracted to it. But after years of research, and actually he started the Blockchain and Society Policy Research Lab at the University of Amsterdam, he puts forward quite a different perspective.
0: You see that in, like, who are in this space at this moment. And what you see is that this space is overrun by the come of earth, right? Frosters, snake sellers, forced profits, uh, money-making people, criminals. And these are, like, the 90% of the transactions in this space. I think blockchains are fundamentally control technologies and this is why states and corporations got so much invested in and interested in these technologies because they realized very early ah, if you can automatize rules, if you can measure performance, this is the perfect way to control populations, or activities, or processes, or societies. So it's not counter hegemonic at all. It's, if it's anything, then it's, it's the opposite.
5: Although this is certainly true, I would also like to introduce David Rozas, who is a social researcher and a computer scientist. He's a postdoctoral researcher in La Universidad Complutense de Madrid, and he's working at the research program Peer-to-Peer Models. He's exploring decentralized technologies like blockchain, and we will be hearing a lot from him and his research in relation to commons-oriented economies.
3: So, basically, when we started looking at the literature in 2018, what we found is two main stance. we could say. One, that it was the predominant, very techno-determinist, and it tends to be quite over-reductionist with some of the social aspects, like, for example, how power is distributed. And then there was another stream of literature, which was a critical stand of this. It was really good at identifying the limitations, but it tends to reinforce the traditional institution. And the problem with this was that it was ignoring the power for collective action of certain communities, the power for self organization. So with all that, we started wondering can we build perspectives of blockchain based governance that incorporate the commons perspectives? Basically, we rely massively on Eleanor Ostrom's work, particularly Eleanor Ostrom's principles.
7: When uh, Garrett Hardin published his paper in Science in 1968 on the tragedy of the commons, I thought, gee, he has just made this up. As he talked, ab- well, he talked of ab- imagine a pasture open to uh, anyone. It wasn't, here's my data, it is imagine a pasture open. Um, and in that imagined pasture, uh, people didn't talk. They just uh, put as many animals on as they possibly could because uh, whatever uh, was uh, left to eat, um, uh, somebody else would grab. So they weren't interested. Well, that became almost like a religion.
5: Elin Ostrom will come up a lot in this podcast. She was really an amazing woman, and she was a political economist and was the first woman to receive the Nobel Prize in Economics. She studied the relevance of the commons around the world, and you might have heard probably about the tragedy of the commons by Gardin, stating that natural resources that are collectively used will eventually suffer from overexploitation and will likely be destroyed. So Elinor Ostrom disproved of that idea by showing how people in small local communities manage shared and natural resources, like fishing waters or forests. She demonstrated that when natural resources are jointly used, in time, rules are established for how these are to be cared for and used in a way that is both economically and ecologically sustainable. Her seminal work has vastly influenced this around sustainability, and we will talk more about her principles managing the commons in the next episode. So what do we actually mean by commoning?
4: You asked me to uh, explain commoning. It's quite difficult. So first of all, commoning is is not a solution. It's an activity. And it's an activity of, let's say, more than three, and as many as possible with the idea to share and collaborate and use and uh, produce and even live together in the way such an open group has decided and uh, negotiated to do so. And uh, commoning comes from the word commons which means a resource, an idea, an approach, um, anything or any um, activity which is uh, common to everybody and who wants to and who is ready to take responsibility.
5: Shintaro Miyazaki has done brilliant work around the intersection of the commons and technology. He's a junior professor in digital media computation at Humboldt Universität zu Berlin, and he directed the research project on the interference of commoning and computation and design at the Arts not in Switzerland.
4: So a commons is not owned by a private company nor a group, nor the state or the government but managed by an open community. Yeah, Commoning is radically about abolishing neoliberalism and capitalism, so an attempt uh, to operate without ownership, without a so-called free market. So
0: what we see here in these discussions and literatures and experiments and uh, various projects is that people are actually reinventing the wheel, they realise. Ah, there are problems around governance which are not solved and we have to think about it. Well, well political science has been thinking about the question of governance since Plato and now tech guys are reinventing 3 million years of, of thinking. Ah, economics plays a role, and commodification and financialization of social relations can lead to adverse effects. Well, this has been uh, in the focus of economic sociology for quite some time. And they are often arriving to the same solutions.
5: Okay, so now hopefully the concept of the commons and commoning is a bit clearer. Something else that is thrown around quite a bit is the idea of utopia and how it connects to blockchain. And this is important to say here that we're not talking about all of the projects about using blockchain, but we are focusing on the ones that are dedicated to social production and reproduction. In these type of proposals, a community can use the technology to define a governance mechanism according to its collective values and shared goals. And this to me sounds very utopian already. Blockchain can be used to make a socio-political structure that provides autonomous spaces, that offers new types of futures. This can be done because of the technology is really very configurable. That is to say that it's adaptable to a particular value system of a specific community. For example, let's say that a community wants to nurture and grow the commons. They could agree to reward each participant who contributes to the common pool with a token. And to me, this is one of the most radical features of the technology. A community can adapt the technology to create a specific governance apparatus that works according to their desires and values. This means that they can create and embody their own version of utopia.
0: So a couple of years ago, Fenka Snouting, a Brussels-based artist-theoretician, asked me in a discussion, in what language are social utopias written nowadays? And she asked that because she could be able to point to the Creative Commons licenses and say, in the early 2000s, 2010, social utopias were written in the language of these copyright licenses, but since then she wasn't quite sure where and how utopian thinking manifests itself in tech. And uh, we were discussing a little bit whether blockchains would be the, the language, was it written in code or not? Of course, these imaginaries. if we invent a new technology, then in the, if that technology have particular properties, then on top of those uh, technologies suddenly social, economic, political, alternatives can blossom. And everything else is happening on a planetary scale. We are embedded in planetary scale networks. We are exposed to planetary scale problems. And the question is, do we have a good infrastructure, a social coordination infrastructure for that? And maybe this is where something will happen.
5: The technology is not a solution for everything, but it does generate the possibility of new and social organizing, which is really something new. Blockchain technology was created by the mysterious Satoshi Sakamoto. He released a white paper called Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system in 2008. And the world was really quite different then. It was just the beginning of what it came to be known as the Great Recession. And let's say that at the time there was plenty of people that were really angry with the system, and especially with the banking system. So this white paper aimed at creating an alternative to decentralized financial systems. But now blockchain is much more than a financial tool. And it is introduced into other contexts, and the possibilities are huge. So the infrastructure makes organizing differently possible. Disguise behind the about governance, scarcity, or censorship, it forces to imagine what type of society do we want. And of course, these issues of governance have been around long before any of this technology. So the technology becomes a rhetorical device. This is what Emiliano Terre explained in the program. He's a senior lecturer in Media Ecologies and Social Transformation at the School of Journalism, Media and Culture at Cardiff University in the UK and author of Hybrid Media Activism. He said that blockchain, understood as a rhetorical device, encourages us to question the status quo. It helps us to think about alternatives, cracks that reveal a liminal space of possibility. And I really like this quote of the philosopher John Holloway, a crack is not a step on the path to revolution, but is an opening outwards. Perhaps this is the way that we should be thinking about the technology. It is not a revolution, but a tool that helps us to imagine the world as we want. And it offers an opening outwards, towards it.
1: We need to stop dreaming in a way, but you know, continue dreaming to illuminate the future, but at the same time, see what has been done and learn from that, and kind of move into the next phase which is still believing it's something better, but at the same time trying to get rid of all the utopian baggage that was connected to blockchain, especially in the first year of the development. We need to think in terms of disruption, but also continuities. This is not absolutely new. I mean, revolution in technology, the potential that is there needs to be grounded in reality and you know and 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 in the everyday practices of digital collectives. Many of those are not familiar with the language, uh, are not familiar with the technology, with the digital skills involved in actually implementing this kind of project. So let's imagine possibilities, let's experiment with technology, let's have our radical imagination, illuminate our future, and the big prefigurative power of uh, blockchain. But in order to do that, We need to be realist, pragmatic realist, you know. We need to play that kind of double register, and that trade-off in our practices. And I I think it's the only way art can play a great role in both illuminating our path, but at, at the same time criticizing the way this is not leading to real change. And when it's just utopian jargon, that is actually justifying authoritarian practice or just the same status quo and the past. We have already seen that. Let's try to move past that.
5: Emiliano Teré points out the power of art in this context. To know a little bit more about this, I spoke to Berlin-based curator and writer Daphne De Grona. She has been exploring how artistic practices have been challenging contemporary forms of power. I asked her what would happen if we implement blockchain infrastructures in the process of commoning.
7: Right now, I find it a little bit difficult to imagine how uh, this can happen when uh, one relates commoning to world building, has to do also with kind of bringing different worlds together and to a great extent to acknowledge differences and needs. Here, for instance, I can quote the work of Marisol de la Cadena, who, who speaks not about the commons only, but also about the uncommons, and very much highlights that it's just not about the commonalities, but rather about how differences and different particularities come together and complement each other and form some sort of interdependence, let's say. And this is when the affective relations play a great part. So if we want to imagine blockchain entering this kind of field, then we have to imagine it as a tool that can empower communities and as a tool that can escape the tech-savvy communities and reach out to other ones that are in need. And somehow, blockchain needs to cross, let's say, cultural and economic borders, I think.
5: Although blockchain moves between the muddy waters of hope and risk, for me, still presents a possibility. However... For it to become a useful and widely adopted technology to manage the commons, there are certainly many issues that we need to sidestep.
4: I wanted to also uh, propose to take back uh, algorithms from such uh, instrumentalist and profit-oriented contexts and make them common to all. So algorithms are in that way. Also, you can think of them as uh, resources like potatoes, or like wood, lithium, attention, time, you could say. And in the spirit of commoning, Our life and environment. What I suggested uh, is to think of algorithms as commons and then in the second step it would be important to initiate and cultivate and federate communities where you learn and participate to code and design algorithms and networks and um, software hardware systems which then foster the activity of commons. common
0: approach and the labour approach has been somehow incorporated into the logics of capitalist extraction. Meaning that uh, when in 2006 this commons idea became very prominent, it came from the US, and despite quoting Ostrom, whose work was all about closed commons with very strict limits of access and extraction, Somehow, these uh, East Coast theoreticians advocated for an open access commons where you labor but the fruits of your labor are free to be enjoyed by anyone. Which creates immense problems now because what happened is that you put all your photos on with Creative Commons licenses online and then Clearview AI come in and train uh, facial recognition technologies with that. And uh, Wikipedia put everything online and then Google took it and uses it. And now Wikipedia is having really serious funding problems because, like, what can they say to Google? It's like, please pay me for something that I gave you for free, right? It's a a non-sustainable thing. And I think this happened to labor as well, where with the precarious labor, this um, gig economy, uh, and with the lack of unionization in many industries, it seems like that the labor is part of the production process. And what is happening now is that people are starting to think about how we can set up boundaries. How can we limit access? How can we prevent certain extractive practices, which we do not want to subscribe to? And this is the union in one case and closing down the commons on the other. And this is where blockchains seem to have some interest for commons people because it's a great way to tokenization to limit access to the commons.
7: I started working on the commons back in 2009 or 2010, and this was when um, the economic crisis had hit Greece. And for me, it was a great opportunity to, in a way, also revisit what I knew and what had understood as commons. I found myself wondering if, in times of generalized crisis, in times of the crisis is a social, economical, climate one, but also crisis of care, if the commons can really do something restore the bonds that have been broken. What I tried to do in my working was to see how artistic practices can offer this and how they can operate, let's say, on a transversal, transgenerational, transcultural level. So, If we want to talk about anything that is common space, we have to always remember that these are resources accessible to all, that these are resources shared and maintained by all. And it very much comes back to always to the communities, let's say, that um, they build, they own, they take care of the commons. So, if we want to talk about the blockchain, let's say, in relation to the commons, then one way to put it is to think if this is a commons on its own, okay. But maybe what would be more interesting is to think how the blockchain can basically support the natural, the digital, the cultural commons and any commons based initiatives. I would see more this as a kind of a crucial question nowadays because the system itself of the blockchain is, of course, based on transparency and decentralization, but that doesn't necessarily tell us something because it is also being used by companies. It is also being used by the market. And like with any technology, it depends on whose hands it is, actually.
6: Yeah, we don't have ways of supporting the commons at the moment. Which is why I was very grateful to discover Circles, which is the project that I have been working on now for four years. And Circles is essentially a a blockchain basic income that all participants are issued Circles upon onboarding. And the way that Circles functions is that you essentially go to circles.garden, you need to be trusted by three people within the application, and you're issued a basic income. And that is 50 circles upon entry and eight a day following that. Technologically, that's, and mimetically, let's say, as a technology, I think that that's very powerful. It's a borderless basic income that also has inherent mechanisms that encourage local usage. And those are, one, that you need to be trusted, which are a bit complicated, because essentially you need to be trusted in order to be led into the system. But you also can only spend circles with a trusted network of people. So your circles that you have are actually individually minted. So I have Saraswati circles and you have Barbara circles. We can exchange if you trust me and I trust you. If I don't trust David, but you do, I can still exchange with David. So transitive trust still functions in the system. And so it broadens your trust network, but it still keeps it somewhat localized. But also circles only has value within a community of use. This is also what differentiates it from traditional cryptocurrency. It's non-speculative. It doesn't exist on exchanges. And so as a result, the valuation of the currency is contingent on the community itself. And so that also orients it towards the commons, or as an act of commoning, because the community determines its value. It also makes it, you know, require a community of use in order to have value. So that means that when you onboard to Circles, you would need to generate that community or find one. So it's a double-edged sword. That framework of local currencies has existed far before blockchain. The idea is that, okay, so if we have some local community currencies and we use blockchain as a tool in order to track and generate a borderless currency, that it could be quite useful and that ultimately those local communities could confederate outwards. And we might see a bottom-up society of community-run currencies rather than a top-down society of centralized banking that we have seen corrupted and fail.
5: Although it is nothing really new, the idea of the commons has been a source of inspiration for people who resist traditional capitalism. Now we will be hearing from Herr Lobink, who is a media theorist and activist. He is the founding director of the Institute of Network Cultures in the Netherlands, and he's also leading the research initiative called Money Lab. It is a network of artists, activists, geeks experimented with new forms of financial democratization. This project intervenes in and experiments with digital economies.
2: The tragic of the decentralized uh, moment or ideology is that a lot of the um, blockchain and crypto projects are, in fact, much more centralized than we might want to admit. Mostly, by the way, in terms of ownership, there's an enormous uh, hidden centralization. I would also say there is a, a centralization in terms of an extensive use of existing data centers a lot of the leading blockchain and crypto projects are simply using google and amazon server space they are making use of an incredible an unprecedented form of centralization in platform capitalism yes platform capitalism that's what this it is all about so the crypto sphere is happening inside platform capitalism and not outside This is a problem that um, we are facing, maybe not on the side so much of uh, the ideas, but uh, if you look at it from the perspective of the emerging practices. So not so much on the level of the stories we tell each other, but on the level of actual use. So the data center problem is, uh, I think, a fundamental one. And in the last couple of years, We have tried to make some progress at that level. This is where maybe uh, some beginnings of blockchain and the common could be allocated and could be, let's say, hardwired also into the, the hardware, into the data centers. Because if we don't do that, we may just repeat the Google and Amazon
6: problem. Decentralization and let's say commoning, which is like a reorganization, I think those things are kind of in very multifaceted, like where you decentralize and where you common and when it's relevant and when it's useful are relative because there's lots of layers of infrastructure to consider. I think it always makes sense to have a diversity of backgrounds when you're in a, a context where there is a diversity of backgrounds. It's important and interesting to begin the work of decolonization and very intentionally invite people to the table who can hold that space, otherwise it evaporates. So I do think there's effort in essentially bringing people who are mindful to the table in order to further that work, and then also being conscientious of when certain concepts like decentralization and accommodating are are relevant.
2: We could maybe start to go out and try to make a connection between the ideas that we have developed in the last five or ten years. You could also uh, imagine You know, with new European rules about data sovereignty and so on, a slight change of policies in Brussels could already put some things into motion in terms of the making of this new public infrastructure. And then uh, when you think of, for instance, let's say a, a new public form of TikTok or, or YouTube, where we then try to build a remuneration system or an income situation for the creative producers who put their work out there. And then you see that the blockchain ideas and public stack, as it is uh, called, could potentially come together uh, because we should demand that if there is going to be a European you know, public data infrastructure. This should not be based on uh, the Silicon Valley ideas of uh, the free, right, where everything has to be stored just for free. No, I think people who want to get paid, artists who need to make a living, will have to be paid for their work.
0: Let me give you an example Uh, and it's a very concrete example and many people are working on it and it's a very controversial example. Within the law faculty there is a a big project going on together with the uh, medical center. The problem that they are trying to tackle is the following. Antibiotics have a problem because it's super difficult to develop them and if you misuse them then the bacteria become resistant. It becomes increasingly difficult to actually avoid people dying from treatable illnesses because there are some doctors and there are some patients who misuse antibiotics. So how you control the use of antibiotics? This is not a problem in Europe because here the healthcare system takes pretty good care, making sure that you cannot buy over the shelf. Their use and consumption is strictly controlled. But this is not the case in other countries where there is a huge black market of antibiotics and where antibiotic resistance is developing at a rapid pace. So, a number of very well intentioned people have started to think about how we can actually make sure that antibiotics do not fail very quickly because we do not have alternatives. And they come up with a blockchain based system with which they could actually control from the factory to the patient the whole supply line, making sure that even in developing countries where there is questionable enforcement of health regulations. There are no health regulations at all. They can actually limit the over-the-counter use of antibiotics. What they come up with is a technological system in which they included the European legal framework of how you control antibiotics, and they just superimposed that on developing countries. Legal, social, institutional infrastructures and practices Now, this is what I call a control technology. I'm not using control in a dominance-crushing resistance. This is not the power logic I subscribe to. What for me power is, is like how do you organize certain practices. And here is a very good example of how you can use technology to extend European hard legislative power and soft power, hand-in-hand with corporate power, into the developing world using a technological vector for the benefit of the good. So you, you don't die when the next resistant stain comes in. Do we want that? Sure we want Do we want it? No, is, this is not the way to do it, right? So I'm, I'm super conflicted, but this is what I mean when I say it's a controlled technology. You are able to actually override existing structures, institutions, practices through this technology, sometimes for the benefit of the good, sometimes for oppressive purposes, but there is nothing in the technology, nothing with which you can make this ethical decision. And this is where the problems start to pile up.
5: There is a thin line between restraint and oppression, and we often find these contradictions when we talk about the technology. Navigating this context with prudence and perhaps a bit of scepticism could also help us to develop better technologies. You're
2: introducing this uh, idea that the blockchain is essentially a tool for for control. And I immediately started thinking, okay, I've heard that before because taxation and state tax is, of course, a perfect way of control. You know, there's another element you could bring in, uh, you know, a a much more gay-like Nietzschean aspect of self-mastery or mastery of the technology instead of saying, okay, it's only meant... In the end, to crush us, uh, why not also bring in an element of mastery, you know, where we try to master the technology instead of uh, a victim?
3: So, I think as a researcher, I have to be and skeptical. It's our role, I believe. There is a lack, I think, in the blockchain space of implementations with actual communities. I think one of the interesting things we are doing in peer-to-peer models is that we are trying to apply blockchain to sort of really large existing communities, and then you start facing all the problems, all the risks, all the limitations, etc. Do we want to automatize everything or not? Will people start gamifying the platform, for example, and we're breaking uh, dynamics altruistic that were there? So rather than having an answer, it's like, you know, this is a really interesting uh, piece of technology, let's research with it. What I found is that there were like two main streams, one of them very uh, you know, techno-determinist, techno-solutionist in the blockchain as an artifact that is gonna change everything. Confusing, I believe sometimes, decentralized technology with the decentralization of power, which sometimes it might occur exactly the opposite. It can happen the other way around as well. But I see blockchain technology from a social constructive perspective, in that sense. Uh, social shaping, I would say, perspective. Meaning that, you know, technology saves society and technology is shaped by the society. So it's, it goes two ways, right?
5: In this episode, we wanted to explain why so many people are talking about blockchain today. Instead of focusing on the financial aspects of blockchain, we look into the social potential. Rather than focusing on results, we explore the possibilities. We delve into the ways it makes us think, the structure it allows us to construct, and the paradigms it aims to overthrow. In the next episode, we will hear more about the possibilities of using blockchain as a tool for social organizing, especially in commons-oriented economies, and the many threats that the technology needs to overcome in order to be useful and usable for a community. The White Papers on Design podcast was produced and narrated by me, Barbara Cueto, with audio production and sound design by Lucia Skatsokio from Social Broadcast. It was supported by FNAV Museum and Creative Industries Funds in the Netherlands.